Welcome to Bethany. We are glad you were here with us for our online service for June 7th, 2020. What a great day this is to worship our God together and to learn from His Word. We're also excited to remind you that next Sunday is our first Sunday back here in this room having our first uh, live service since the whole COVID thing hit. We are so glad that we're going to welcome you back here. When you come, you'll notice that some things have changed. We're taking a lot of precautions. We have social distancing and our seating here. We're going to be asking that people wear masks during worship. And we're going to have temperatures taken as you come in. So make sure you get here early uh, so that we can get all of that stuff done, get you seated, and get on with our service. Um, and for those of you who are higher risk, uh, we want to invite you here as well, but we want you to think carefully about whether or not you should come. Uh, so that's, we'll leave that up to you, and we just want to let you know that's one of the reasons that we're taking extra precaution here to keep people like yourselves safe. So it's going to be a great day. It is going to be a different kind of day, um, but we're looking forward to being back together as the body of Christ worshiping together. For now... Here we are. Let's worship our great God together and pray before we do so. Lord, we thank you for this time that we have to worship you in spirit and in truth. Lord, we pray that you would be glorified through our worship, that you would be honored, and that you would transform us further into the people that look more and more like Jesus Christ. We know that you want to continue to do a work within us, um, purifying our hearts shaping them, filling us with truth, Lord, so that we represent you well in a world that so desperately needs you. Lord, we love you. Thank you for this time that you've given us. We pray that it, you would use it, Lord, for your glory and the good of your people. We pray in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Now let's worship together. The land is plentiful. Blessed be your name. Found in the desert, blessed be your name. When I'm found in the desert place, though I walk through the wilderness, blessed be your name. Every blessing, every blessing you pour out, I'll turn back to praise. When the darkness closes in, Lord, still I. suffering. Blessed be your name on the road marked with suffering. Though there's pain in the offering, blessed be your name. Every blessing, every blessing pour out, I'll turn back to praise. When the 
There is no one like you. There is none beside you. Open up my eyes in wonder and show me who you are and fill me with your heart and lead me in your love to those around me.
I'm not a big fan of most superheroes. I think I've mentioned that before. What I do like are the quiet, unsung heroes that do their work in the background. The ones who are usually overworked and often underthanked. They're, they're the ones uh, without whom buildings would crumble to the ground and trains would go soaring through the air down into those ravines and countless lives would be lost. Those are the, the heroes that I like. Of course, those heroes we wouldn't even know about unless they were, they were discovered, right? They were brought out into the light for all to see and celebrate. And that's exactly what I hope to do this morning as we look in the pages, in the verses of Genesis chapter 37. As we, as we look there right now, let's look to see who the hero is in this story. Genesis 37, it reads like this. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings, in the land of Canaan. And these are the generations of Jacob. Joseph being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bila and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. And when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, hear this dream that I, that I have dreamed, behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, are, are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? And so they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I've dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. Here's what I see going on in this passage. I see, first of all, favoritism. And this wasn't anything new to the patri patriarchal families. Isaac, remember, he enjoyed those tasty meats that his older son Esau would bring home from his hunts. And, and because of that, he loved his son Esau more than he loved Jacob. He played favorites. On the other hand, Jacob held a spe special place in the heart of his mother, Rebekah. Unlike his older twin brother, he was a, a softer sort of man, a guy who hung closer to home. 
and Rebecca would have done anything to make sure that her favorite son was going to get what was coming to him, and that's exactly what she did. She played favorites as well. Then there was Jacob. You'll remember that he loved Rachel more than he loved Leah, far more than he loved Leah. And why wouldn't he? Uh, No one would fault him for that. She was the woman that he was originally falling in love with. And the only reason Leah was in the picture at all was because of the terrible deception that had been played on him. Jacob had his favorite But it wasn't just Rachel that was his favorite. He also loved her sons. He loved Joseph, and he loved Benjamin more than all his other children. Joseph, in particular, had a special place in his heart. And why not? He was the oldest child of the woman of his dreams. But now she was gone. And Joseph was the only person that reminded him most of his late wife. That, all of that really, probably along with the fact that Joseph, it seems, was untainted by the sins of his older brothers. Remember their their anger when when what, what happened to Dinah? The anger, vengeance welled up within them. They committed mass murder and had illicit rendezvous. All of that brought Joseph favor in the eyes of his aging father. Favoritism, it was, it was all over the place. Yet favoritism is a terrible and ugly thing, is it not? Have you seen favoritism in your life? Maybe you've, maybe you've been like Joseph's brothers. You've been on the outside looking in. Maybe you've been, you've been uh, struggling to stomach that that awful bias of of a father or a mother or a teacher, or even now, still feel its piercing sting. How did you respond? Not only did Jacob's behavior create an environment that was ripe for those seeds, those tiny seeds of bitterness to sprout into an enormous, vicious plant, I think Joseph's actions were also a contributing factor as well. That's the second thing I see in this passage. We saw favoritism, but we also see that Joseph seemed to have a naive sense of superiority. Look back to verse 2 with me, would you? Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Billa and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Joseph, out in the field with some of his brothers. And that's where something happened. Now, we don't know what happened there, but we do know that Joseph came back with what the English Standard Translation translates, a bad report. But what exactly did that mean? Was it that this report about his brothers was, was uh, 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 merely about their bad behavior? They were the bad guys. Joseph was merely the whistleblower. Or maybe the report was somehow bad in and of itself. Maybe Joseph in some way misrepresented what had happened. Maybe he exaggerated or maybe he embellished to get his older brothers into trouble. You know, being the oldest of eight kids, let me tell you, I've seen that a time or two. 
Or maybe it was a combination of both. We don't exactly know, but we have two words in the Hebrew that, that point us in a certain direction. Two words. The first word is dibah. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right, but, but there it is. That's the word for report, okay? And the second word is ra'ah, which means evil or is translated bad. And so there you have it. Two Hebrew words, two English words, bad report. It makes sense. And yet, because the word that is used for report has only ever been used in the Bible to describe an untrue report, and because it's amplified by this negative adjective that's next to it, we're led to believe that there's actually something wrong with the manner in which Joseph told on his brothers. You know, experience and a little speculation, that would lead us to the conclusion that because Joseph was his father's favorite son, perhaps that led to the formation of a young man who naively thought himself to be a cut above the rest. And perhaps that led him to be inclined to reinforcing his special position, the one that was formulating in his mind, by finding ways to put others down. You've known people like that, haven't you? I have. And it just, the thought of it makes you, you want to cringe. My parents told me years and years ago, and I think it's definitely true, that no one likes a tattletale. <laughs> They're the worst, aren't they? Man, if, if I was... Uh, uh, <laughs> If, if, there, if I was in this situation and, and my father was playing favorites and then my younger brother, Joseph, was tattling on me, I'd be so upset, wouldn't you? And that's exactly what we see happen here. We saw favoritism, we saw, see this naive sense of superiority, and then we see the response. We see anger and jealousy and division. Look back to verse 3. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now, there is reason to believe that this, this coat... This coat that's described as a coat of many colors that Joseph's father gave to him. There's, there's reason to believe that, that the translation, uh, it, it may not necessarily be right to translate it a coat of many colors. But what does seem to be certain is that this coat or this robe was something that was significant in, 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 in what it was. It, it, it indicated a certain stature, it, as if jo, J, Jacob had, had um, the way jo, Jacob was treating Joseph by giving him this coat, he was saying that it, Joseph is on a different level than all the other children. 
most likely this gift is served to make some sort of statement that even though Joseph was the youngest, he was going to be the first heir of the family. He would be the one receiving the lion's share of dad's fortune. And the response? Well, hatred, certainly jealousy, and division. That's not really any surprise to us, is it? Most anyone who found themselves in in that set of circumstances would be expected to feel the same way. But where does the blame actually lie? Some wouldn't hesitate to say, well, the blame lies with Jacob, of course. It lies maybe even a little bit with Joseph. And that's certainly the way we often look at things in life. We reason our actions away based upon the circumstances or or the actions of others. Yes, I did what I did, but I only did what I did because they did what they did. I'm not really the one to blame. This is on them. It's a simple case of cause and effect. If A happens, then B naturally follows. If you give a mouse a cookie, he's going to ask for a glass of milk. You can't blame the mouse for wanting milk. You gave him a cookie. What did you expect? But is that really fair? Do jealousy, anger, and divisive or even violent actions necessarily follow? Or could it be that there's something going on inside of us that's actually to blame for the way that we respond? We may not feel like considering that. It may make us feel uncomfortable. But that's exactly what the Bible teaches You can't blame others for your behavior. You're responsible for your own actions and reactions. And that's because the thing that tempts you to act out is not the circumstances or the people on the outside of you, but according to the Bible, it's the posture of the heart that's on the inside. That's what the book of James James tells us. You can't blame circumstances. You can't blame people. You can't blame the devil. You can't even blame God. He writes this. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. And then it goes on to explain how temptation works here. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So James gives us this step-by-step process for how sinful responses come to be. How do they come to be? Well, they begin within the confines of the human heart. That's where our desires are seated. Desires to preserve and protect and defend and even worship self. Rather than love, love for God and love for others, which, which should be taking first and then second place respectively within our hearts, love for self rises high above all the others. And that causes us to respond um, to any perceived attacks or threats to self well, with, with bad thoughts, with bad words, 
or bad behavior. See, according to the Bible, it's not the circumstances that tempt us to fly off the handle or loose our rage or stew with bitterness. It's the self-focused desires of our hearts. And it's when we listen to and when we obey those desires that we find ourselves in trouble. Now, it's easy to see that happening in other people, isn't it? We look around and we see this happening all over the place, don't we? Especially in recent days. I don't think there's a single person aware of what has been going on in our nation that has not been at least tempted to raise a finger and point in one direction or another and say, that's wrong. We've seen it in the anger and frustration that has come out as we, we disagree on the dangers and the restrictions and the precautions and, and the lack of precautions in regard to COVID-19. Is this response right? Is this response wrong? Should the government uh, be doing this or should they be doing that? Are they trying to harm us or are they trying to help us? Should our church buildings be open right now or should they be closed? And we make our determinations, don't we? We plant our flags in the ground, and then we get upset with those who think differently. Why? Because my heart tells me that I'm right. And I need to defend my conclusions. And I need to defend my pride. We see it in racism, don't we? We see it again and again and again. As people are unjustly profiled, or as they're mistreated, or to the horror of us all, in some cases, they're murdered. Racism is a despicable thing. But our hearts, they lead us to believe that, for some reason or another, we're superior to people who are different than us. Our way of thinking, our preferences, our culture, our way of doing life, the way that we look, that must be better than theirs. It's awful. We see it in hateful responses, don't we? Of course, hating injustice and evil, that's a good thing. But when we allow our hate to consume us and be indiscriminately applied to whole groups of people, well, then we've allowed ourselves to become the very thing that we reacted to and hated in the first place. When the ones who were hated becomes the, become the haters, we see the horrible reality and destructive force of sin. Sin begets sin, begets sin, beget sin. It's like a spider's web. It's M.O. It's, it's to capture us, to entangle us, and we you cry harder and harder to fight, we only find ourselves more trapped than we were in the first place. But our hearts keep leading us in that direction. They lead us to believe that if anyone poses even the slightest threat to our lives or to our pride, then we should raise the drawbridge, loose the hounds, and let the arrows fly. We see it happening in the tagging and the cursing and the looting and the beating. We see it happen in the prideful ways that we're tempted to condemn and look down upon those who are acting out when the very same issues and responses exist within us. 
someone that I know wisely wrote last week. I can empathize with the rioters and looters out there. I also destroy things, relationships, opportunities, because I'm feeling scared, helpless, wanting control. I know how easy it is to tear down out of unbridled anger to enter a downward spiral of outbursts and hate. It's because we share the same thing. A sin-sick heart. That hurts. It hurts because I know that's true for me. Well, it's often not very difficult to identify the problems that exist in the heart of others. Blindness to the condition of our own hearts, that spread like a pandemic. And until we recognize it, until we fess up to it, until we're willing to condemn it and deal with it, we can't expect others to do that either. Are you ready to examine, confess, and deal with the sickness of your own heart? There are a lot of people out there right now who are looking for change. They're looking for solutions, and that is a good thing. But here is one thing that is very important for us to realize. Well, it may be all well and good to educate and work towards systemic change unless you begin with the root problem. Unless you begin to address what's going on in human hearts and find a way to make the transition from loving self to loving God and loving others, well, you're going to find yourself dealing with the same old problems, the same old racism, the same old jealousy, the same old anger and hate speak, same old violence again and again and again. That's what was going on in, in Jacob's children. In, in, his name was changed to Israel, remember? Jacob and Israel. That's what was going on in his family. Yes, their father's fa favoritism was the thing that, that rubbed, but ultimately the reason the, the, the friction existed was because of what was going on in their hearts. The desire of their hearts, that was for themselves. Jealousy turned to anger and hatred, and hatred led them to the point where they couldn't even talk to their brother without showing disdain and resentment. Have you seen that in your own life? It happens. It happens between brothers and sisters, between husbands and wives, employees and employers, citizens, police officers, and every other conceivable relationship in existence. Are there desires rooted deep within you that spark when the circumstances are just so? When someone fails to see things the way that you do, or when they disregard what you have said, or disrespected who you are, or the position that you are in? That's the same thing we've all been wrestling with from the very beginning. And it's the the very same thing that our good creator has had a plan from even before the beginning to change. That's what the whole story of the Bible is about. God's plan to fix the mess, to solve the problem, to rewire what went wrong in the human heart. 
And that plan is Jesus, the promised one who would come through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and their descendants. But that leads us to another question. The question is this, okay, so if God's great plan is to reset human hearts so that they love him first and others second before they love themselves, then why doesn't he seem to be doing anything to fix the hearts that we see spinning out of control in Jacob's family? Where's God in all of this? He started all of this, didn't he? He's the one that called Abraham and set his family apart. He's the one who called Jacob uh, the younger of the two twins. Where was he now? We don't see him even mentioned here in our passage. Had he given up on this messy, messed up people? Or maybe he was just sitting back, enjoying the drama of it all. Maybe at his heart, God is just a really big reality TV buff who enjoys watching other people cut themselves to pieces. Or could it be that even in the midst of all the favoritism, all the, the tattletelling, the jealousy, the anger, the growing division, could it be that he was quietly working, setting things up in just the right way so that his people might be preserved through a terrible season of famine that was coming and that they might go on to bring about the Savior of the world. Let's look at verse 5 again. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, Hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright, and behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. You can imagine how this went when it, it was told to his brothers. No one could have missed what the dream was implying. And apparently, no one but Joseph wanted to hear it. Who wants to hear that they're going to have to bow down to their younger brother? In verse 8, they respond. Essentially, what they say is this. Are you serious? Are you for real? You think you're going to rule over us? I don't think so says they hated him even more because of his dreams and his words. Then comes another dream. And again, he announces it to his family, this time to his father and his brothers. Now, have you ever, have you ever known um, parents who were just so enamored and bubbling over with pride for their child that they just had to bring them out and show them off? I remember this one time I was over someone's house and they paraded out their youngest child asking him to perform, uh, to sing, to dance, to do impersonations and tell jokes. And I could just remember after taking in just a few minutes of this disgusting display, I just felt like I was going to puke. It was awful. Gross. No one likes a show-off. And yet it seems like that's just the way Joseph came across when he said, Behold, I've dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and eleven stars were bowing down to me. This time, even his father objected. He says, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And not surprisingly, we read that his brothers, they seethed 
with jealousy. But his father, like Mary later on, you remember this? Mary later on would ponder the words of the angel in her heart. And just like that, Jacob, it says, kept the saying in his mind. He kept it there, thought about it. Now, of course, for those of us who have read on and have heard the account of Joseph before, we know that these dreams actually indicate what was going to happen. It'd be some time before they came to realization, but it, but it was going to happen. It's interesting to notice that all the dreams and the chapters concerning Joseph, they come in pairs, they come in twos. Later on, Joseph would explain to Pharaoh, he would explain uh, verse, uh, chapter 41, verse 32. He'd explained that the doubling of Pharaoh's dreams means that, that that thing is fixed by God. And God, he said, would shortly bring it about. So these dreams back to back were an indication that this wasn't just something that was brought on by too much pizza or uh, matzah. These things were going to happen. But what gives? What is the point of Joseph dreaming these dreams right now? And where did these dreams come from? If these dreams were from God, which we would assume, then why does he give them to Joseph knowing who Joseph was and knowing the attitude Joseph would have and what he would do and how his brothers would respond? What gives? Why would God do this? And here's where we see a faint glimpse of the hidden hero. I grew up thinking that this story was about God showing what it looks like to be his ideal servant. Joseph, he's this innocent, well, kind of, innocent, mistreated, falsely accused and imprisoned, and yet through it all, he remains obedient, doesn't he? He continues to optimistically serve. He flees temptation. And then he's ultimately vindicated, given this incredible power, and he saves God's people from starvation. There's this sense at the end of the Joseph story, at least that I had, that the better man wins in the end. This is the rise of the underdog, and now he can say, oh, how the tables have turned. I identified with this story. I identified with it because I was never really the popular kid. And every time I got passed over, someone else got picked for the team before me, someone else got ahead in life, I thought, you know, God will reward me for my faithful obedience to him. He's probably glad that he has someone like me working for him. What a great story, I thought. If only I can be like Joseph, then I'll end up on top when all is said and done. But you know, this story isn't about Joseph and his heroic acts of obedience, at least not first and foremost. This story is about God, the hidden hero. It's about God working through ordinary events and even through human sin to bring about his singular plan to introduce the Savior of the world. See, God calls Joseph, knowing full well that he would announce to his family these dreams, that he would infuriate his brothers, even to the point of them selling him into slavery, so that through a series of events, 
Joseph might be in a position to later deliver God's people and protect the path for the Messiah. That's what God was doing. God is the hero. And and the beauty of what God does here in Joseph's life, it actually even goes further than paving the way for Jesus. Through the way he allows it to happen and unfold here, God actually gives us a picture of what the Savior would actually look like. In some powerful ways, the story of Joseph, it foreshadows Jesus. Think about it. Joseph was set apart to be lifted up above his brothers. Just as Jesus would be set apart to be exalted over all. Joseph was rejected by his family, horribly treated, just as Jesus would be rejected by his people and condemned to a violent death. Joseph was betrayed, just like Jesus would be. Joseph resisted temptation, just like Jesus would do while fasting in the wilderness. Joseph served faithfully, just as Jesus would be the ultimate example of faithful service. Joseph brought light to clouded visions, just as Jesus would bring sight to the blind and tear the veil off of God's mysterious plan. Joseph provided salvation for God's people, at least in a physical way, just as Jesus would make provision for the salvation of the world. So the Joseph narrative, it's a key piece in the framework of God's salvific plan And yet it also serves as a preview of how that plan would culminate in Jesus Christ. God is the hero. He's the master craftsman. He's the skilled conductor behind the curtain and the sovereign ruler over all. The main message is not to be a hero like Joseph. Though there are certain things, certainly things about Joseph that we should want to emulate in our own lives. The main message is that even through the crazy, inconvenient, tragic, painful, unjust moments of life, God is sovereignly working His good and gracious plan to redeem a wayward people and bring them back to himself forever. They're not the heroes. God is. What should our response be? I think our response should be this. Worship. Worship. It should be worship that takes the form of trust, obedience, resilience, steadfastness, hope unshakable, joy invincible, and of course, praise. It's song and celebration in the midst of our current suffering. God is good. God is working. And he's prepared an eternity of unending good for those who trust in him. He's the hero. We're living through a difficult season of history. The world hurts. Our nation aches. People are at each other's throats. 
And while the cries for love and peace and for unity, they're unmistakable and they're frequently heard, there are moments, aren't there, where those just feel like, like cloud dreams that will never fully take shape in the real world. And we ask, where's God in all of this? He doesn't seem to be putting a stop to our sorrows, does he? Remember this. We don't always hear the voice of God answering our questions to the crazy things that happen in our lives or in our world, but that doesn't mean that he isn't working. It doesn't mean that he isn't quietly moving in the background, preserving his people, orchestrating things in such a way that, that in the end, it's his glory that's seen for all of its brilliance and great good is experienced by his people. You and I might not be getting the answers that, that we would like to have. Maybe they're not coming in the middle of the night in, in, in our dreams or by audible voices, but never forget that God has already made his position clear in his revealed word in the pages of, of the Bible. Paul said at the end of his letter to the Romans that that what God has been doing throughout history, he's been keeping that a mystery for long ages, Paul says. He's been keeping it a mystery, what he's been doing. That is until at the right time it was revealed at the beckon of his eternal command. And now it serves to call us to obedience in faith and bring him glory forever through Jesus. If you've not placed your trust in him, if you've not yet acknowledged the sickness of your own heart, confessed your sin to him, looked to and trusted in what Jesus Christ did on the cross and paying for your sin as your substitute, and if you've not yet experienced what it's like for God's Spirit to come inside and wash your guilt away, make you a new person, and begin a lifelong transformation process that ends with complete freedom from the desires that war against you and eternity in paradise with your Savior, would you do that now? Would you trust Him? Would you look to him as your one and only hope? For those of you who are already on that path, you've been washed clean. You're being transformed. The old desires of your heart are being replaced with the desires of Christ. You've been set free from the bondage of sin and you're being empowered by the indwelling spirit of God. You know where your hope is built. You find your peace in God. You're ever trusting in his promises. You know where your true home is. And you're living this life in preparation for the next. Will you continue to worship? Would you continue to trust? And continue to obey? Continue to ask him for resilience, for steadfastness, for hope unshakable 
joy invincible? And would you continue to make it your daily mission to praise him, to celebrate him, to cast your cares on him, even in the midst of your current suffering? God is good. He's working. He's preparing an eternity of unending good for those who trust in him. He is our hidden hero. Would you pray with me? Lord, we, we cry out to you. We cry out to you on behalf of a world that is broken and a nation that is divided and hearts that are wrecked with the disease of sin. We cry out to you, Lord, and we confess our bitterness and our jealousy and our anger and our pride and so many other things, Lord, that plague us from the inside out. Lord, we confess those things to you and we recognize, Lord, that we cannot fix those things on our own. The fix isn't going to come through some social programs or some educational process or some type of big change, Lord. The big change that we need comes from you. It comes from Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord, that from the, before the foundation of the world, you had this all figured out. You had it all planned. We saw the fall in Genesis 3. We saw the horror that it brought to our world, and we're experiencing that today, Lord, and yet we know that your plan has been unfolding throughout history, and that you were making a way for the Savior to come, that he might live a perfect life that he might die a death that he didn't deserve, a death that we deserved in our place. And there he took our sins on him. He took our guilt upon himself and he paid for it. He paid for it in full. And he is now alive and well. And as we place our trust in him, we can experience forgiveness for our sins and we can experience new life in Christ and we can live even now, even in this life, as people who are being transformed, as people whose hearts have been rewired and changed to where now God is first, others second, me last. Lord, we need that. We pray, Lord, that the message of hope, that message of Christ would not stay here, but it would go out for it from here, that it would impact countless lives out there who need it desperately. Change us from the inside out, Lord, we pray. Change our world. Make us new. We love you. Help us to trust you. Help us to look to you as our one and only hero. We pray these things in the mighty name of Jesus.